Cody Parkey. There should have been a cheer that went up. That should have been every Eagles fan's favorite player on the field last week. And get this, he wasn't even in an Eagles jersey, and he, yet he should still be our favorite player. So if you, haven't, if you haven't heard yet, the Philadelphia Eagles miraculously advanced to the second round of the NFL playoffs last week with Parkey's last second missed field goal, appropriately coined the double doink, because it careened off of two poles on the goal posts. Great news for the birds, terrible news for Parkey. Well, would it surprise you to learn that I played a little bit of football in high school? Would it surprise you even more to hear that I was the guy who kicked the extra points for our team? And would it surprise you even further to hear that because I was the kicker for our team, we usually just went for two-point conversions? (laughs) I wasn't a good kicker. But I did learn a little something about every team's kicking game. Mostly I learned that it's not all about the kicker. Anytime you watch a guy kicking a field goal, if you're one of those people that watches football, if not, that's fine. Anytime you watch this, though, there are a thousand things going on at once with tons of moving parts. And each part is critical in its own way. There's the long snapper. There's the holder who catches and places it on the turf at the right time, at the perfect angle. There are the offensive linemen that block for the guy who's kicking. Then, of course, there's the kicker. But the kicker couldn't do his job if the snapper, holder, and lineman didn't do their jobs. For instance, when you slow down the tape frame by frame from Parkey's missed field goal last week, you'd notice that an Eagle defender actually got his fingertips on it. So some offensive lineman missed his assignment and endangered the kick. So all of these roles on the field are simultaneously interdependent. So you could make an argument that each role is just as critical as the kicker's. Well, for the next three weeks, we're going to take a break from our series through the Gospel of John. If you're new to Trinity or if it's your first time here today, our typical practice is to work through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. But sometimes we do like to break things up a little bit, and we're doing that for these next three weeks here. So for these three weeks, we're going to discuss the interdependent roles in the church. We're going to be discussing how the various roles within the church depend on one another, and we're going to see how they all work together for good. So today we're going to be talking about the spiritual leaders of the church, the the pastors or the elders. Then next week, we're going to discuss what will be kind of a new office for Trinity, at least, in our experience. It's the leading servants of the church. We call them the deacons. And then the following week, we'll discuss the other critical role in our church, the congregation. So God has called all of us, pastors, deacons, and congregation, to work together for good. He's providentially piecing us together like a puzzle, so that we might display his glory by doing gospel good to one another, to Abington, and to the world too. So this is especially relevant and timely for us in these next 18 months, the next year and a half or so, as we're going to be introducing and voting on some new pastors here at Trinity. Both Faith Community Church and Trinity Church have more than tripled in size in less than a year, And the fact 
is that we need more gifted, called, and qualified men to humbly lead and shepherd us. Don't worry. We're going to be rolling these men out slowly and publicly and give you plenty of time and opportunity to dialogue with them and to consider them and to get to know them. Because as we'll see in a few minutes, if they're not viewed well by outsiders, if they're not respectable, if they, if they can't explain the gospel, if they don't meet the qualifications that First Timothy lays out, then the current pastoral team is going to ask you to join in on the vetting process. We need you in on this. There's just too much at stake in this to not be incredibly careful about this. But even sooner than that, even sooner than we introduce some new pastors, we're going to be introducing some officially, officially recognized servants who will help spearhead, spearhead various things here at Trinity. The New Testament calls them deacons. The word deacon just means servant. But more on that next week. So let's tackle this first critical category of offices that God has given to the church so that it functions properly in a way that we all work together in an ensemble for good. So, Let's clarify our terms just briefly here. Here at Trinity, our leaders are called pastors. Occasionally, you might hear them referred to as elders. Those two names are sort of interchangeable, like you might think of the words bride and wife. They mean the same thing, pastor and elder. We have some pastors that are vocational. I'm one of the vocational pastors. Then we have pastors who tirelessly, tirelessly serve us in addition to their vocation. We call them bivocational pastors. These men, individually and as a whole, are tasked by God with, uh, with, with the task of spiritually feeding and leading the church. If you're new here, here's our pastoral team. Ernie, he's one of our bivocational pastors. Lou is a bivocational. That guy is a vocational pastor. John, he's one of our vocational pastors, and then Brandon is also a bivocational pastor. So two of us have it as our job, and then three of us have it as sort of an extra job uh, on top. It's impossible for me to adequately express to you just how blessed we are to have these men, aside from one, to have these men faithfully, humbly serving us here. These are unbelievable men men of God with a variety of gifts. We have a lot to be thankful for in them. I have a lot to be thankful for in them. I'm serious. I want you to know firsthand just how deeply these men care for you. I've seen it over hours and hours of conversation and prayer. They badly want to serve you and lead you in a flourishing life with Jesus. Now, if you don't have a whole lot of church background, you're here today, I'm guessing that the idea of pastor or elder or a team of elders, some sort of pastoral council, might sound a little creepy to you, maybe stirring up thoughts in your mind about a secret, super powerful Jedi council bent on saving the galaxy with their extensive and untouchable wisdom. It's not that, I assure you. Or maybe you do have a background with the church, but you have a really sketchy background with church leadership. Your experience with church leadership has been maybe really negative, maybe with abusive leadership patterns. You've seen the havoc firsthand that lousy church leadership can wreak on a church, and you don't want any part of it. 
Well, I hear you on that this morning. And I just want you to know that those experiences were not born out of Jesus' vision for the leadership of his church. Those experiences were a result of sinful men losing that vision. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to experience sin in the leadership here at Trinity. You will. Just ask my wife. She'll give you a real clear picture about the sin of one leader here at Trinity. By God's grace, the pastors of Trinity will always be men who are humbly repenting and always returning to the vision and the way that Jesus uh, describes for us here in this book. Okay, let's jump in. We're going to discuss three things today. Who pastors are, how pastors relate, and what pastors do. The first one is by far the longest one, so don't get nervous when we finally hit number two this morning, okay? Number one is the longest. First, who pastors are. Now, if your company is on the prowl, is on the search for its next leader, maybe a CEO or a CFO or its next president or something like that, those involved in the hiring process are likely most interested in finding someone with skills at running an organization. And that makes sense. But in the church, although having an ability to manage people and resources is certainly an aspect of being a pastor, the New Testament puts a far greater emphasis on the holy character of the church's leaders. Trinity would be far better off having a godly pastor with mediocre leadership gifts than a charismatic leader with glaring character deficits. So let's look for a moment at the character that God demands of the men who are the leading shepherds of the church. First, you can see it there in 1 uh, Timothy 3, they must aspire to the office. So right off the bat here, we see this first qualification of being a pastor. They're men who aspire to the office. There's something intangible in them that says, man, I love this place, and I love these people. I sense God's call on my life to lead and serve and fight for the souls of these people right here, right here in this local context. So they desire the office. Paul continues, verse 2. You can follow along. We're going to be skipping from all of these, um, through all of these character traits here. Verse 2, pastors must be above reproach. A pastor must be above reproach or, or blameless is another word here that we could use. And this does not mean, obviously, that we're sinless. Instead, what Paul is calling for here is pastors to display, hear this, conspicuous Christ-likeness or to be free from conspicuous sin. It can't be a man who brings shame to the gospel. It can't be a man who brings shame to our local church family here at Trinity. One pastor said it like this, being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. So nominating men like this, this description here in 1 Timothy, should stoke the fires of trust in all of us, knowing that these men are all out committed to Jesus and his way. Look back down at verse 2. Pastors should be the husband of one wife. Now, there is a lot of debate about what's going on here, and we're not going to wade into all of it this morning. But I will briefly give you an overview. The, the debate revolves around two central ideas. First, that pastors must be men. 
Now, this may be new to you. If you're unfamiliar with the, with the Christian Bible, this could even feel a little bit offensive to you, especially in modern-day America. There will be a time to dig deep on this and to talk more thoroughly about this, and we can do that later, or we can do it offline if you'd like to. And there are some good people, people that disagree with us. But for today, suffice it to say that God has created men and women equal in value and in worth, and yet unique in their roles for the flourishing of human life, for the home, and for the church. We believe from the scriptures that God has called just men to be pastors. And we fully believe that this is in no way, hear this clearly this morning, in no way denigrating to women. We want to lift women up, to put them in a position to thrive spiritually, professionally, even in the church, to be in positions of leadership where God allows there are, uh, there are some ideas, uh, some areas that we've done okay with this at, I think, at Trinity, and there's others that we need to grow in, but at Trinity, the pastors are men, the husbands of one wife, like Jesus says here. But the other half of this debate around this phrase revolves around whether or not pastors must be married, because it says the husband of one wife. Some people say, okay, if he has to be the husband of one wife, then he has to be married to be a pastor. Okay. But we know that's not true because Paul wasn't married. In fact, he's not married and he says, it's a good thing that I'm not married because I can do more for the kingdom because I'm not married. If I wasn't married, I think I would do far less for the kingdom. So Paul, Paul was a different man than I. But what I think this text is ultimately saying is that pastors must only have eyes for his wife. A pastor must only have eyes for his wife. He is to be a one-woman type of man. He's a sexually faithful spouse in body and mind. Let's keep going. The pastor is to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. You can follow along there in 1 Timothy 3. First, sober-minded. He can't be carried away by his passions in an unhealthy way. He's got good judgment and common sense. He's able to react well. Pastors face very many complex and serious issues. And decisions. So it's important that they exhibit stability, both mentally and spiritually and emotionally. He has to have self-control. He can't be a hothead that blows up really easily. He's got to be respectable. A lot of these traits are going to start sounding familiar as, as we get into them. But respectable is just this idea as the church observes his life, there's no question about his integrity. Let's keep pressing on here. The pastor is to be hospitable. Now, this has nothing to do. Hospitality has nothing to do with the ability to whip up an amazing latte or learning the art of pour over coffee or anything like that. The undertones of this hospitality requirement, rather, means that pastors cannot shepherd from a distance with a smile and a handshake on a Sunday morning. It means that, increasingly, our pastoral team is going to be spending time with you over coffee, in your homes, over meals, in our homes, out to eat. Hospitality does two things for the pastor. First, it demonstrates that all the pastor is given by him, by God, is given to him that he might serve the church and serve the community around him. Second, it also allows others to see his family in action, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So pastors are called to be hospitable. Pastors should also be able to teach the next thing there in the text. 
Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they all have to do what I'm doing right now. Some of them will, but not all of them will be teaching from up here. But all of them have to, at some level, be able to teach. This means that at any given point, if you sat down with a Trinity pastor, he should be able to adequately and thoroughly explain the gospel to you, or an aspect of our faith, or something like that. They need to be able to teach that sort of thing. If they can't, they're probably a great guy, but they're not a pastor. And this is probably where the dividing line between pastor and deacon is most clearly seen. Some men are character qualified to be a pastor, but they don't really have the ability to be able to teach. There is no shame in that at all. God's given them another, not lesser, another calling, likely that of a deacon. And again, we'll get to that next week. All right, finally, crossing over into verse 3 here. Pastors must not be drunkards. So here's the deal. Drunks don't make good pastors. All right, you heard it here first. Mark it down. Pastors must be above reproach in their use of alcohol. Keep pressing. They should be not violent, but gentle. One pastor said this about the qualification. He said this. There is a famous Swahili proverb that says this. When the elephants fight, the grass is trampled. Likewise, when a church's shepherds are combative and aggressive, the sheep get hurt. Egotistical, domineering, argumentative, pushy, gruff, hot-headed, explosive pastors crush church members. Instead, pastors should be gentle giants, exercising their authority with the tenderness of a shepherd and the sensitivity of a loving father. Next, pastors are not quarrelsome. A pastor can't be that guy that just thrives on conflict. A guy who's up for a debate about anything and everything. There's no place for that in a pastor. Next, a pastor must not be a lover of money. They can't be men whose primary pursuit in life is their own personal wealth. He must be content with God's provision and not be controlled by an ever-increasing desire for money and stuff. Next, he's got to be a man who manages his home well. You look down at verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how is he going to care for God's household, for God's church? So in America right now, there's this sharp divide between the public and private lives of people. Business leaders are evaluated based on their ability to generate wealth to lead companies, and to accomplish goals. His home world, so to speak, his marriage, his sex life, his kids, that's all irrelevant to whether or not he can lead a company. Not so in Jesus' church. The pastor's personal life matters immensely. In fact, according to God, marriage and parenting is a proving ground for whether or not a man is fit to lead the church. So Paul is saying here, if he cannot serve his wife, love his kids, lead at home, love at home, then how can he do that with the bigger family, the brothers and sisters in the family of God? So wrapping up here, pastors should not be recent converts. I think this is pretty self-explanatory. But pastors should be established believers. They have to have been in the faith long enough to be battle-tested, to have their faith tried to have come through it, maybe with scars, but ultimately unharmed. Finally, pastors must be well thought of by outsiders. 
by outsiders here, Paul just means non-Christians, people who haven't put their faith in Jesus yet. So a pastor can't be a man who, when people find out he's a pastor, people go, really? <laughs> that guy? Are you serious? I think, I think a lot of us tend to compartmentalize our lives this way. When we're at church or around Christians or at community group or whatever, we tend to act in a certain way. But then as we get into the flow of our lives, whatever that may be, we tend to put on a different mask. Pastors can't be that guy. There are no masks for pastors. So if someone outside the community of faith found out that this man was a pastor, they should go, they should go okay, that makes sense. It's in keeping with the way he lives his life. And here I want to throw two quick caveats your way before we finish this section on who pastors are. First caveat, I never want us to think here at Trinity that our pastors are untouchable. Like they can't be questioned, like that there's no way to hold them accountable. The pastors of Trinity do need to be held accountable. They need to be held, held accountable by the membership on whether or not they're fulfilling these high and holy requirements made to us by God. So take a hard look at these descriptions and please hold us to the high calling even as we call and implore you to your own high calling in Jesus. That's caveat one. We're not untouchable. Caveat two. I want to throw a curveball at you this morning. Would it surprise you to hear that all of these descriptions here are just what progressive sanctification leads all of us to. The descriptions here are what progressive sanctification leads all of us to. I apologize for sports illustration number two today. I'll get us back on track next week and get us out of the sports world. But I remember in high school, very vividly, the night before basketball games that I would play in, I'd pull out these old tapes of Michael Jordan, and I'd throw them in, and I'd watch them for inspiration. That's who I wanted to be like on the court. Sometimes I even stuck my tongue out on the court because that's what Michael did. I wanted what I watched on the tapes to raise the level, raise my own level of performance on the court. I think that's what this text is designed to do. It's like pulling out that old Jordan DVD and watching for the purpose of inspiring ourselves to mature Christianity. Nobody is going to reach these ideals perfectly but we ought to shoot for them. All of us, even if you don't aspire to be a pastor, this is just kind of an encapsulation of mature Christianity. So I don't want anyone today, man, woman, boy or girl in here, leaving here thinking that the dudes on the pastoral team are just some elite, dark ops, special forces, uber brilliant group of men that is so far beyond what anybody else could ever be. That's not true at all. Basically, this text is just describing mature Christianity. So all of us here should aspire to this sort of faith in 1 Timothy 3. Not necessarily to the office, but at least to the character qualifications of the office. Elsewhere in the New Testament, all of these character traits are commanded by God for all of his followers, not just the leaders. Okay, that's, that's the lion's share of what we're going to cover today, who the pastors are but I do want to cover two more quick points. Second this morning, how pastors interrelate. Obviously, we have more than one pastor. That's really intentional because the pattern we see in the New Testament is for each church 
to have more than one pastor. We call that a plurality, a plurality of pastors. So plurality helps to round out the particular gifts that God has given to each of us. None of us has what it takes to be a know-it-all or a fix-it-all. We only have that ability to do that together, collectively. But together, we're much stronger than we are individually. So plurality helps us make better, wiser decisions and helps in knowing the congregation more intimately and personally. But we don't only have plurality. We also have parity. Plurality and parity. This means that each of our pastors has the same amount of authority, the same number of votes, if you will. As our lead pastor, I wield no more authority than any of the other guys. So don't come to me trying to get brownie points, all right? I got nothing. Uh, We're all equals on this team. So that's briefly how our pastoral team interrelates here at Trinity. And finally today, let's chat about what pastors do. I'm not sure what your past experiences have been like with pastoral teams or elder boards or whatever. But at Trinity, our pastoral team is not just a governance board. In some churches, there seems to be a lot of governance going on on these teams and not a lot of shepherding. Although pastors are tasked by God with with oversight of the church, which means they kind of want to back up, see the church as a whole. They want to consistently kick the tires and say, okay, is this working? Is that working? Are we all headed in the same healthy direction? That's part of the pastor's role. They must govern well. But then if all they're doing is that, if all they're doing is governing and not shepherding, they've left their biblical call behind. That's not true pastoral ministry. It's not just a group of men who huddle up on a Wednesday night and vote on operational and budgetary issues. That's not a pastor. Not according to the scriptures. Yes, oversight. Yes, governance. But the ultimate job of a pastor, vocational or not, if it's their paid role in life or not, their ultimate job is shepherding. In other words, the bulk of pastoring happens outside of that room that we meet in. It even happens outside of this room that we all meet in. So pastors are charged with three primary responsibilities in 1 Peter 5, 1-4. You can read with me up there if you want. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd, that's role number one, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, that's the second one, not under compulsion, but willingly, as, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples, and that's the third one. So, so pastors shepherd the flock. That means we're committed to knowing and loving the sheep. And don't, don't be demeaned by this imagery of sheep this morning. It's, it's straight from the Bible. It's what God calls us. And it's not like we as the under-shepherds, the pastors, it's not like we ever stopped being sheep. We are still sheep, even as we shepherd. We're right there with you. So our pastors are committed to knowing and loving the sheep. They also exercise oversight. They lead and protect, often through teaching like this. And finally, your pastors are to serve as, as examples. We're, we're called by God to model health for the sheep. Sometimes we do this well, and sometimes not. But it's a heartbeat. It's our passion. It's our joy. It's our privilege to limp alongside you in weakness, even as we care for you in your weakness. So I hope, I hope this doesn't seem too dry to you this morning. This is the real life, the real high calling of pastors of Jesus' church. It's no joke. 
pastors are a critical part of the interdependent roles at Trinity Community Church. So two brief take-homes for you today. I've mentioned them already, but 1 Timothy 3 is basically a description of mature faith. If you're falling pretty far short of that today, join the crowd, number one. Number two, read back over it this afternoon. Remember, God calls for all of these things in all of His people at one point or another in the Scriptures. So ask God to massage these things into your soul, to work this out in your life. Aspire to the holy greatness that God calls for in you. Second, 1 Timothy 3 is really important for the congregation at large to be familiar with. You should know, you should know 1 Timothy 3. These are the character traits that God has called for in your leaders. So you must graciously, humbly, consistently call for these sorts of things in your pastors. Please do that. I want to close today by pulling back the curtain to give you a peek at the cadence of our pastoral team meetings. I want you to know what our heartbeat is, even if our follow-through on our heartbeat is wanting sometimes. We commit these things out loud to each other each meeting. So I would beg of you, as you, as you read, as I read through these for us, as you read along silently, pray for us that we would be faithful and consistent in living out these ideals. I'll read them for you and you can read along. We are not at a business meeting. Our bottom line is people, not production. We are committed to trusting Jesus, not our skills, charisma, or strength. We are not the exclusive inner ring of Trinity Community Church. We are servant leaders. We are each operating and collectively operating from a position of weakness, not strength. We are not know-it-alls and cannot be fix-it-alls. Jesus alone knows it all and will one day fix it all. We are not here to do large things famously as fast as we can. We are committed to the long view on spiritual change, numerical growth, and congregational buy-in. Many times, hurrying is not helpful. We commit to giving each other the benefit of the doubt. No relationship is on the line tonight. We often differ or disagree as a matter of temperament or perspective, and not because one of us is sinning against another. We will be quick to give and receive forgiveness, when we do sin against each other. We believe that prayer, building relationships, and sharing our lives together is not a waste of time. We all agree that this thing that we are doing is all about Jesus and not about us. We are all under shepherds, not the great shepherd. We were all sheep before we were called to be under shepherds. We all continue to be sheep now that we are under shepherds. So would you pray with us that those commitments would become a reality for us. That's our heartbeat. That's our passion. That's what we want. We'd love for your help and prayer on that. And then next week we'll pick up on deacons as we continue pressing toward each component of the church working together for good. To do good to each other. To our community. And to the world. All for the glory of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thanks for giving us shepherds and these other men who you have so clearly gifted, called, and qualified to lead us. I want you to know how grateful I am for them. I pray that you'll help ours, our, our pastors to run and sprint and strain and strive for life in you. 
But ultimately, I pray that You draw us to the senior shepherd, to the true lead pastor, to Jesus. To Jesus who is our shepherd, who causes us to not want, who leads us to lie down in green pastures, who leads us beside still waters, who restores our soul. Jesus who leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, help us not fear the evil around us. For Jesus is with us, shepherding us with His rod and His staff that comfort us. Jesus, thank You for preparing a table before us right in the face of our enemies. We can eat and drink and be satisfied because You are with us. You anoint our heads with oil. Our cups overflow. Because You're our shepherd, goodness and mercy can follow us all the days of our life. And because you're our shepherd, we will dwell in the house and the family of God forever. We're glad to be your sheep, Shepherd Jesus. Help us follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, I, I wish that every day I could look in the mirror and see a perfectly mature 1 Timothy 3 kind of man. The reality is that I don't, and I bet you don't either. Here's the good news, though. Christianity is the end of you feeling like you have to pretend to be better than you actually are. The entire message of Christianity is telling you that you could never get to God on your own, no matter how hard you tried, no matter how close you get to being a 1 Timothy 3 person. And that's okay, because God had to come for you, for me. And He did come for you and me. This is why I'm really glad that at Trinity we get so many opportunities to sing together. Even on mornings, when we talk a little bit less about Jesus from the text, we get to sing about Him and pray about Him and read about Him. This morning, we've gone deep on what the character of our leaders here at Trinity should be. We've held the standard impossibly high. I've felt that at least. No one, no one of us could ever achieve that list in 1 Timothy 3 with perfection. We all fall short of its ideal. But though we've fallen short, Jesus has not. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that text. And it's why he came in the first place. And it's why Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, we proclaim the Lord's death and his resurrection. This morning, if you know Jesus in a saving way, come, eat, and drink. Enjoy him. Enjoy Jesus. Revel in the fact that though you fall short of this description, you have hope in Christ alone because Christ is yours forevermore. Because He is, you get all the amazing benefits that Christ gets. It's really an amazing gift that God gives us in Jesus. But if you're in another category this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Him in a saving way, if you're not believing in Him, then we just encourage you to stay put. There's no shame in that this morning. 
Now, others are going to come forward. But that's not because they're any better than you. You could ask any one of them. They know that they're not better than you. They've acknowledged that. They said, God, I fall short of the standard. But Jesus didn't. And I put all my faith, all my hope in Jesus. If you've got questions about that this morning, if you don't know Jesus in this way, we'd love to speak with you about that. Track me down afterwards. Love to speak with you about that. If you're not able to make it forward this morning, so our practice here is to dismiss down the middle aisle and then just to, to come down the middle aisle and dismiss back out the side aisles. If you've never sort of done communion in this way, these people are great people here, but they can't do anything for you, I promise. They're just offering you a symbol of what Jesus has done for you. And so when you come, you can get the bread and get the cup. You can eat it right away. You can go back to your seat and kind of contemplate and think and meditate on what the Lord has done for you. And then you can stand up and sing together as we, as we sing and shout about our faith in Jesus. If you're in the back and not able to make it to the front today, no problem. We have somebody in the back that can give you uh, the bread and the cup. And then if you need a gluten-free option, just know that it's all gluten-free. All right? We've gone all gluten-free. So you can come on either side, and that will work for you. Okay? Spend a couple minutes, meditate on what God has done for you, and then come forward and rejoice in what we have in Christ alone.